Shalom. This is Gary Durashinsky, Congregational Leader of Beth Ariel Messianic Congregation. Thank you for downloading our message. We're delighted to make it available to you through the generous donations of our members and friends at Beth Ariel. We know that many are struggling financially because of the challenges facing our economy, and we do not want financial issues to keep anyone from enjoying our teachings. So please continue to listen in as often as you like. But if our presentations have been beneficial to you, and you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at bethariel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Also, please remember to pray for us, that we would be responsive to the Lord's guidance as we reach out to the lost sheep of the House of Israel in the greater Los Angeles area. Thank you, and I hope you enjoyed this message. Shalom. It's good to be here. It's good to worship with everybody and come together as the body of Messiah to love each other and to enjoy each other. It's just really good to be here. This morning, I know in the past couple weeks, Gary's been talking in particular about the Lord's Prayer, which is very pertinent, very applicable to our own personal lives. This morning, I'd like us to take a step back and look at congregational prayer, how we as the body of Messiah are to come together and to pray with one another. And we're going to be talking a little bit about that. I also wanted to take this opportunity to thank you as a congregation for your prayers for both my wife and I as we kind of made a transition from Chicago all the way over here in Southern California. We've been about a year here now. So thank you so much for your support. For your love, and uh, we couldn't we couldn't be happier to be a part of Beth Ariel and to build the work here. So thank you so much for your prayers on that. No gas money, <laughs> although if you want to give it, I'll take it for sure. So thank you so much. If you ever think about prayer, try to try to imagine and think of prayer outside of the context of faith is difficult, I'm sure, for a lot of us. But try to think of prayer from the perspective of the world, from the perspective of perhaps the secularist. It's kind of a weird thing, right? If you think about it. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. This happened a lot in Chicago. I'd be walking down the street, and I'd, you know, be going to get a cup of coffee or meet my friend for, you know, whatever. And I'd be walking, and this, this man or woman, whoever it might be, would walk past me, and they would be speaking boldly into, like, thin air. Like with very coherent thoughts, like they're having a conversation, and it kind of concerned me, you know, when I would see this. I'd be like, are you okay? You know, my, my faith in society almost dropped, because I didn't know what was going on. Why is this person talking so loudly and coherently into uh, thin air almost? And then once they'd get past me, or I'd turn around and look back, I'd see they'd have an earpiece, you know, in, in their ear. I'm like, oh, they're actually talking to somebody this is actually a conversation. There's somebody on the other side of the line. But if you think about it, a lot of times, this is how we, myself included, and certainly the, the, the world outside of the context of faith, sometimes views prayer. Just kind of speaking into thin air. We don't really believe that there is a God out there. We don't really believe that he, our prayers are effectual for our own lives. 
that he can actually change what's going on. Sometimes we kind of view it like that, like it's just speaking into thin air. And this morning, we're going to talk about how it's effectual, how prayer does change things. And the funny thing is, and this is a general truth that many, many brilliant authors have written about. Timothy Keller actually speaks about this. But there's a general truth that the majority, hello Levi, that the majority of us, the majority of humankind actually will reach out for the supernatural, for the spiritual. They will reach out for God, something bigger than themselves, something transcendent. They'll reach out for that in order to understand and bear up under pain, right? Under suffering. So it's interesting. You'll see people who are staunch atheists or say there's no such thing as God or perhaps agnostic. Maybe there is a God, but we don't really know anything about him. But what's interesting is when pain and suffering crash in on somebody, there's an undying need within all of us to reach out for the spiritual, to reach out for something bigger than ourselves, to reach out perhaps for God. And we know that God this morning, right? We know that there, that there, that there is a God and that he has communicated to us through the Bible and that Yeshua has made that clear to us this morning. No other man other than the brilliant Jewish psychologist, uh, Viktor Frankl, really observed this. And he wrote the book, uh, Man's Search for Meaning. And in 1944, he was sent to Dachau. And he observed among his comrades that some were able to bear up under the suffering and that others, unfortunately, were not. And the difference, he writes in his book, was what he calls a sense of meaning, right? So the guys that were able to understand and bear up under the pressure and pain of suffering had a real solid sense of meaning. You see, the issue with contemporary man, with the issue with contemporary society, is we get two things confused. We get happiness and meaning confused. We think that meaning is in happiness, right? So we have movies like um, uh, Search for Happiness. And so what we do is we construct our idea of what is happiness, good career perhaps, a wonderful family, and all these things are good in and of themselves. But when we change our meaning for life into those things that we think that we've constructed to be happiness for us, what happens when suffering and pain comes? It gets ripped away. And we're lost. With We're bankrupt. We have no sense of meaning. We have no sense of purpose. And so what Frankel writes about and what he observed in his fellow comrades that he loved is that they were able to find out that meaning does not come from what we can get out of life, but rather what life expects of us. That is to say that true meaning comes when we can find it in something outside of life, bigger than ourselves, precisely the one who created life, the one who created ourselves, when we find our meaning and substance and our identity in that God who created life, there's a true sense of purpose, there's a true meaning, so that when when your happiness and those constructs that you've created are ripped away, you still have purpose, you still have meaning. So what suffering does 
is it enhances our need for God. And prayer, corporate prayer, we'll also see, is the reality. It's the reality of talking to God, even though sometimes we might not feel He's present in our lives. Prayer is the reality of a relationship with God that's, that's uh, horizontal, and then out of that flows a love for others, which is vertical. So this morning, again, we're talking about... Oh, I'm sorry. Let's go back one. Um, this morning, I'm talking about the prayer life of a congregation. Again, keep in mind that this is so relevant for our culture because there is an undying need within all of us to be in relationship with a real God that is really there, that is really present in our lives. So our text this morning is going to be in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4, where Paul, I'm sure you guys know the Apostle Paul, writes to his beloved son, spiritual son, not, not fleshly son, where he writes to him about how to do this. How do we do congregation? How do we do this thing called the ecclesia in the New Testament? So if you have a Bible, open up. I'll be, writing, I'll be reading out of the NIV. And there's just a couple things, and I know... I don't want to go too long here. There's a couple things that I want to point out for our own lives and from the Word of God. So let's turn to 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow the knee before your word. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know your will for our lives. And of all, Father, we want to be in a relationship with you that is real and authentic. I ask this morning that you would bind us together as a body, that we would love one another and bear one another's burdens and pray that we would pray for one another and that we would pray for the community that is around us for the sake of the gospel. Father, you've made it clear in these verses that your will is that all men come to know you. So I ask that you would conform our will to be the same. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. So whenever you read a passage of Scripture, and again, remember, this book, this is what we claim, this is what we believe here this morning. We believe, one, that there is a God, right? And we believe that He has communicated to us through God's Word and through the person and work of Yeshua HaMashiach. So whenever you open the text, whenever you open the Bible, it's critical that when you're reading a section, you understand what is the main point. So the main point for us this morning is that, and it's very simple, and it's something that we know, all, all, all preachers, all teachers should be telling you things that you probably already know. If you open the Bible and you see something that you've never seen before, it probably wasn't in there in the first place. They're probably just making it, um, making it, you know, something out of it. But the main text is talking about, the main point is that we are called to corporately pray for all people. And the two things I want you to think about when you look at that sentence is the word corporate and the word all men. It is so easy for for Western society and for us to think in individual terms. 
So break out of that mold and think about the congregation. Think about the group. Paul's calling the group to pray together and to be with one another. And this is why it's critical that we're here, right? Physically, on a Saturday, that we can come together and be with one another and pray for one another. And then the second thing, all men, this is another hard thing for us sometimes. We tend to pray for people that we like, right? We appreciate, right? Or that we're thinking about. But Paul's trying to push the envelope and say, no, you got to pray for all men. All men need, need salvation. And when we go through these verses, there's going to be three other points that we go to, three other aspects of where we're going in this, in this message. And the first is, verse 1, we'll see the importance of prayer. Why is it important? Why do we do this? And the second is the scope of prayer, which is in verses 1 and 2. So who should we be praying for? And the last is the content. What is the substance? What are we supposed to pray about? And Gary's messages on the Lord's Prayer are great here. I think that's a great cross-reference to fill in. How should we pray? And he gives a model for us, and you can take a look at that in Matthew on your own time. But first, let's talk about the importance of prayer. When we look at verse 1, we need to be students of the text. So the first thing that I want to draw your attention to in verse 1 is how much importance Paul puts on prayer. He says, first of all, and he uses the word urge. And this is, actually, let's go back here. First of all, an urge is Paul's way of saying, this is the most important thing your congregation can do. Remember, 1 Timothy is a letter that Paul has written to Timothy on how to do congregation. Some people don't like the book because it's a little bit drier than Paul's other writing because it's so like almost a book of order. But what's the first thing Paul says about how we do congregation? Corporate congregational prayer. He says, I urge, and then on top of that, first, before anything else, before you elect elders, before you call out deacons, before you decide on how you're going to handle widows, the first thing you need to be about is to be about congregational prayer. The second thing I want to draw your attention to is the word then. It can also be translated as the word therefore. And that causes us to go back to the preceding section. And so if you can in your, in your Bibles, go back to chapter 1 and then look at verses 18 to 20. And I'll pull that up here. So go ahead forward. Keep going. Yeah, there you go. So in this section, Paul writes, Timothy, my son, I give you this instruction so that you may fight the good fight, holding on to faith and a good conscience. Some have rejected these and so have shipped faith. So the main point that Paul's talking about here is that prayer is directly related to a sincere faith and a clear conscience. So look up again at verse 19. Hold faith and a good conscience. And then right after that, Paul goes into prayer. So this is to say, Paul's making the point that your prayer life, the congregational prayer life, is directly related to the sincerity of your faith. Not only the sincerity of your faith, but also the clarity of your conscience. And look, take a look at the second verse. It says, 
or the second part of verse 19, some have rejected these and so have shipwrecked their faith. So this, again, comes back to the cardinal rule. What's the greatest commandment? To love your God with all your heart. And what's the second one? To love your neighbor as yourself, the horizontal and the vertical. And prayer is where that all starts. Your love for God, your communion with God is demonstrated in prayer. And your prayers for others cultivates a heart of love. When that's not happening, when your prayer life is bankrupt, and it's not praying to God, it's not praying to others, this is what happens. I got a little pointer. I'll close that. This is what happens. It becomes a shipwrecked faith. It becomes a shipwrecked faith. When I was reading this, I had the mental picture of, you know, a great, I don't know if you guys like Pirates of the Caribbean, but a great pirate boat or a great ship of all wood. And when our prayer life is bankrupt, it's almost like in the belly of that ship, it's just got full and piles of these of uh, termites or these worms that could eat wood. I don't know if that even exists. But it's like when our prayer life is bankrupt, it's like we're a ship, and in the belly of our ship are these termites. And what do they do? They just kind of burrow through the wood. It just corrodes the wood. When we're not loving God and talking to Him, and we're not loving others and, talk, and praying to God about them, it's almost as if doubt creeps into the belly of our boat, right? And it starts to eat away so that we find ourselves in complete doubt and not even loving God and not even loving others. So Paul says again that prayer is directly related to the sincerity of our heart, sincerity of our faith, and the clarity of our conscience, having a clear conscience. I'm sure you all know this in your own lives, but when you're not loving God and when you're not loving others, it, you feel it in your conscience, right? kind of ebbs away at you. So pray. Pray to God. Pray to God about others. And it will bolster your faith in Him. So the importance of prayer is wrapped up in the sincerity of our faith and the clarity of our conscience. Let's go to the next. Oh, I'll give you a quote here. Jonathan Edwards, I don't know if you know him. He's actually known for his crazy fire and brimstone sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He's actually a really cool guy. He's dead, but he's a really cool guy. And he wrote this about prayer, which I thought is very pertinent in showing how prayer is the fundamental exercise of faith. He, he writes, True prayer is the faith and reliance of the soul breathed forth in words. Don't you love that? It's the reliance of the soul breathed forth in words. But a hypocrite is without the spirit of faith. He has no true reliance or dependence on God but is really self-dependent. And isn't that the heart of prayer? Being dependent on God, not being self-dependent. So let's go on to now the scope of prayer. And the first thing that Paul writes in verse 1 is it's for everyone. Now this is not encouraging us to have very generic, broad strokes kinds of prayers. You've always heard that like, Lord, I pray for the peace of the world and I just love everybody and I just want everybody to just get along. It's not asking about that. It's not pointing towards that. It's asking that you specifically pray for everybody, not just those that you get along with, not just those that you like, not just those that you respect, but are you praying for all people? Are you praying for Democrats? Are you praying for Republicans? Are you praying for Muslims? Are you praying for Arabs? Are you praying for all people, or do we just pray for those that we agree with? Paul's pushing the envelope. And what's crazy about this is think about the historical context of when Paul is writing this. 
You know who was in charge during that time? Nero. You guys know anything about Emperor Nero? The guy was nuts. He, he was just the worst dude ever. He was so bad to the Christian community that he actually would take believers and get a, get a bucket of tar and then get a paintbrush and lather the tar up on the believer and then put them on a post and burn them during his dinner parties. That's how awful the guy is. And Paul is saying, pray for all men. And then more than that, the next step is, let's go to the next point. Uh, There you go. (laughs) The next point is that we're called to not only pray for all men, but not neglect those people who are in positions of authority which really packs a punch when you put it in the historical context of who Nero was and how Paul's calling us to pray for our people in authority. You know, with our presidency, there's just, you know, I think a lot of people have a lot of hot opinion about him. But are we praying for him as a Christian community? Are we praying for his salvation? Are we praying that he comes, you know, that he makes peace and justice for the propagation of the gospel? So let's not neglect those who are in authority. And finally, let's talk about the content of prayer. And I'd like to touch on some of the aspects that Paul goes into in the first verse. And the first one is requests. That a part of our prayer would encapsulate requests. And these four, it's not like they're different kinds of prayer. It's, they overlap a lot. These all can be within the same prayer. But the first one is requests. The second one is prayers. The third is intercession, and the fourth is thanksgiving. And basically, this means just request is making a request for a specific need made known before God. Prayer is bringing those before God. Intercession is appealing boldly on their behalf. And finally, thanksgiving is being thankful for those. So again, when we're coming before God, the content of our prayer should encapsulate some of these. It doesn't have to be all of these in particular, but these overlap in their aspects, different aspects of what prayer is. So we're making requests for others. We're making those known before God. The term intercession actually has the idea of having a conversation, pleading with somebody on behalf, on their behalf. So the book of Job is a good example of this. You see Job wrestling with God. It's the same thing for us in our lives. Are we having a conversation with God that is reflective of a true and living and authentic relationship with God? Is that a part of our prayer life? And then finally, the thanksgiving. Are we thankful for what God is doing, for how God is moving in our lives? And let's go to the last. And also, what this produces in all of us is a life of peace and quietness. This isn't necessarily that we're passive or that we don't have any backbone. But really, what Paul's making known here, it's sharpened actually by the end. So take a look at verse verse 4. This is what clarifies what Paul means by that we would have a life of peace and quietness. And verse, verse 4 reads, "...who wants all men to be saved and to come into the knowledge of the truth." So the reason that our prayers are for the president and our prayers are for all people is that so that peace can reign and so that quietness can reign in the land. Emperor Nero was an awful man, but at the same time, 
he did have peace, right? He did, it, he did enforce peace over the land of Rome. For what purpose? So that the gospel could go forward. That the truth of Yeshua could go forward. That's what Paul's talking about here as far as peace and quietness. That our lives would be reflective of God's and that we're submissive and praying for our authority who would then also provide peace and quietness for the land so that we can go out and share the gospel. Are we thankful for that? Are we thankful that I can be here this morning and come up on stage and talk to you about Yeshua, talk to you about the gospel, and I'm not persecuted for it? Are we thankful for that? Are we praying for that? That's Paul's main point, is that we pray for others and we pray for the authorities so that peace can reign for the sake of the gospel. And are we living in that reality? Personally, are you living in the reality of the gospel? That Yeshua did come and that he did live a perfect life without sin, without malice. And he died for you. He came and he died for you. Why? Why did he have to do that? So that you could be reconciled to the Father. That you could be reconciled to God. That his righteousness on, in his death would be transferred to you. Do you believe that? That you stand righteous before God because of what Yeshua did. And then he what? He rose again on the third day to defeat death, to defeat sin. And he did this for you. He did this so that you could have a relationship with God, so that you could love others well in the context of being saved, in the context of knowing the goodness of God and the salvation of God. That's why we are to pray for others. So let's go to the so what. So what, Andrew? So we're supposed to pray as a congregation. So we're supposed to love one another. So we're supposed to love God, and so we're supposed to love others. So what? Well, my question to you is first a personal question. How's your boat? Take some time to think. You know how previously we were talking about that sometimes when we aren't praying to God and praying to others, it's like having you know, termites in the belly of your boat. So the question is, how's your boat personally? How are you doing with the Lord? How are you doing in your love for others? And then last, how, how's our boat? How are we doing as a congregation? Are we loving God to the greatest that we can? And are we showing that in our prayers to Him? And are we loving others? Are we extending the hand of mercy and extending the hand of prayer for others on others' behalf? So let's be a people group. Let's be a body that loves God, that prays to God, and that loves one another and prays for one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you so much for this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would be molding us and shaping us into the people that you want us to be, that we would demonstrate our true love for you through prayer, and that we would actively seek out to build one another up and to pray for one another fervently, continually. Lord, we want to be used by you. We want to share the truth of the gospel with others, with Canoga Park, with Los Angeles. Father, that your name would be praised in the ministry here at Beth Ariel. Lord, give us vision for the future. We're coming up into a time of uncertainty, Father. And we know, according to Romans 8.28, that you work all things together for the good 
of those who love you, who are called according to your purposes. Lord, I ask that you would align our hearts to your purposes. Father, we give all these things to you in your precious and most holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our message. We hope that it serves to encourage you in your walk with the Lord and your service to Him. Do remember us in your prayers, and if you are able to provide a financial donation to Beth Ariel, whether large or small, would you prayerfully consider sending a gift in support of our ministry? You can donate online through our website at BethAriel.org. That is spelled B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L dot org. Thank you again, and may our Heavenly Father richly bless you as you continue to follow Him. Shalom, shalom.